All right, so as we begin, uh, I'll tell you a little, little story. So uh, as a kid, I was, uh, my Aunt Charlotte, some of you guys have heard me talk about my great Aunt Charlotte, um, she, would, she would babysit me when my mom was working. My mom was a single mom for a while, so mom had to work, and when mom was working, somebody had to watch the heathen, so my Aunt Charlotte took care of that for us, um, and she was awesome, but one of the things she really enjoyed doing was she enjoyed doing puzzles. Is there any puzzle people in the house? I don't understand you, but I love you, Okay. <laughs> But she would, and she would help, call me to help her, and, and you know, I would sit down and help her, and we would sit in the middle room, and we would just put this puzzle together. And you guys that are puzzle people, you know how you do this. You leave the table out, right? And you come in, especially with those mega puzzles. You, you don't bother the puzzle, right? You come in, you do pieces of it, you, know, you dedicate yourself for an hour or two a day, maybe even more, or if you're like me, you become obsessed with it, and that's why I don't do puzzles anymore is because I'll lose six hours to, this has to look right before I walk away, or I'm going to have a coronary, right? So, but we would do that, and you guys know what I'm talking about. You'd come in, you'd put it in. And one of the things that was so amazing to me was the way that some of those puzzle pieces, you would see it in the beginning, and you'd be like, that's not going anywhere. That's, that's a different part. That's a different puzzle. They accidentally mixed this up. But then as you begin to work it, and you put the whole thing together, that piece that looked impossible to fit anywhere else all of a sudden has a place. And, and then you would put it in. And it was always amazing to me. And then I got into high school, and then I got into college and began to do more studies. And, and one of the things that really interests me is the human body. I think it's, a, it's an amazing machine that God has put together. And watching the way it works and learning about the way it works is just it's astounding to me. And then when you begin to look at the human body and you see how all of it works together in perfect puzzle pieces... You know, if you saw, you're like, oh, that may be separated, you'd be like, what is that for? That's insane. But when you see it connected to the body, you're like, oh, that makes perfect sense, right? And it's amazing the way that that has been structured together. More on that in a second. So we're wrapping up our series titled Stop Going to Church. Because you've heard me say it the last two, two weeks. It's what I think we need to stop. We need to stop going to church. Because the problem is, is we've allowed just going to church to substitute for our relationship with God and our relationship with our community. We've allowed just attending the one-hour service on Sunday to somehow be the end-all, be-all, and it's not what it's supposed to be. And don't get me wrong, I love doing I love sitting in rows with you guys. I love preaching God's Word. I love doing all those things. But if this is all it is, it's hollow. It's not enough. Church is not meant to be, you know, the church is not a building. It's a people. And we're going to discuss some of that today. So as we talked the last couple weeks, in week one we learned that we don't want to be lukewarm, because that's gross. We don't want to be lukewarm Christians the way that Jesus talks about them to the church of Laodicea, right? We don't want to be those people. We want to be sold out hot for him, and we don't want to be in a situation where we are allowing the church to be our relationship with God. It's not the relationship with God. For some of us, it was a starting point, but it's not the only thing. And in the same way, last week we learned the importance and through the demonstration of Jesus in the story of the Good Samaritan, when Jesus told that parable, we saw the importance of loving and caring for people who are nothing like us, didn't vote like us, didn't act, don't act like us, don't watch the sports we watch, don't do the things we do, but yet we see Jesus make the Samaritan at the end of the story. And if you watched last week or heard last week, you understand how scandalous it was for Jesus to make the Samaritan the good guy in that whole story. 
Because he was breaking down barriers and he was saying, no, no, the kingdom of, of heaven is going to look completely, completely different than what you guys think it is. So that's what we learned last week. And this week is, uh, is equally as important, although probably not as challenging as last week's. I know I started last week's messages and just said, buckle up, buttercup, because it was going to be a rough one. So this one, you guys, everybody take a deep breath in. <sighs> this one's not going to be that bad. All right. Now that I've set it up. I don't send me emails now. Like, Brandon, that was worse. All right? So, uh, but before we get started, I mean, we got to answer this really important question. What is the church? Because I just told you what the church is not, right? I told you it's not just a building. I told you it's, it's not just a Sunday service thing. It's not just a TED Talk you listen to on the way to work, right? It's not just dope worship and music and lights and stuff like that. It's not those things. So if it's not those things... What is the church? Like, what is the church? And in order to understand that, we have to go back a little bit. And lucky for us, because we're, we're on this side of the cross, Jesus defines the term for us, what we should expect it to be, and then Paul expands on it. So thankful that those guys made it easy for us. So where does the word come from, the word church first come from? When you're in the New Testament, it first shows up from the mouth of Jesus, Okay? We're going to get into the about himself, and you'll understand why this is important. And Jesus is proclaiming a truth about himself. He's proclaiming a truth about himself. And he gets all of his disciples together, and he asks them the question. He's been doing miracles by this point. Everybody has seen him. People starting to know him. He's kind of a big deal. And he gathers everybody together, and he says, who do the people say I am? And as he asks this question, they rattle off the typical things. Oh, well, you're Elijah, you know, maybe you're the Moses, you know, maybe you're this, maybe you're that. And then he stops and he says, okay, yeah, yeah, but who do you say I am? I know what they say, and that's grand, that's great, but, but who do you say I am? And then they all kind of sit around and they don't have an answer, except for my man Peter. Peter always had an answer, even if it was wrong, Peter had an answer. <laughs> that's why I love Peter. I was that kid in class too, Peter. So he, but Peter gets this one right, and he gets this one right for the help of the Holy Spirit. And this is, and he looks at them and says, who do you think I am? Peter answers it this way. He said, you are the Messiah. That's a big word for them. That's a big deal. Nobody had really said that about Jesus to this point. But Peter sees all the things happening, notices everything, and then a little bit of revelation from God. And all of a sudden, Peter goes, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, you are absolutely right. You nailed it. Bravo, my friend. You got it, right? You're there. You made it. And then Jesus expands on that. He said, you are blessed. And then he says, and I will tell, and I will tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. You've heard me describe this moment, right? There's theological implications to this moment. The theological implication for the Catholic viewpoint is that when Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock, because Peter means rock, that then it, all authority from Christ when he died passed to Peter. And therefore, it's on Peter and the idea of the Pope that God would build his church. That's the Catholic viewpoint. The Protestant viewpoint is that it's on the promise. So it's on the promise or the declaration that Jesus is the Messiah. That is what we believe. That is what we believe the proclamation is. Now, I want to make you a little uncomfortable for just a minute. And if you come from a Catholic background, I'll make you a little bit more comfortable. I think it's a both and. 
I think that Jesus is saying the spiritual and theological implications are that it is on this promise. That's absolutely true. But I think on the physical and practical things, Jesus is saying it's on Peter that we're going to get this thing started. Because if you know your church history, Peter became the leader of the early church movement. Now, it's not Peter that it's built on, but it's on Peter's hard work and his leadership that God would build up the church and eventually pass it off. So I think it's a both and. Theologically and salvation-wise, it rests on the promise that Jesus is the Messiah. But in the physical, it is that Peter put the work in and became the early church leader. That's why the Catholics end up acknowledging him as the first pope. But in this little section right here, he says, and on this rock I will build my church. There's our word. First time in the New Testament, church. And this word is interesting because the Greek word is ekklesia, ekklesia, which is a cool word to say. You want to sound really smart, say that in Bible study this week. You'll sound really smart, okay? So ekklesia is the Greek word. And that word means, in this case, gathering, gathering, a group of individuals. It was often used in the Greek language to um, kind of describe like a town hall meeting or where people would get together and discuss ideas or people would get just gather together for one purpose or another so that it was called an ecclesia when people came together in that manner. So Jesus is saying, and in this ecclesia, I will build my ecclesia, I will build my gathering, I will build the group of people and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Now, the Greek word, we get this transliteration to church because it's a German word. Church comes from a German word. And this is the Greek to Germanic transmission. And as you know, when you go multiple languages, sometimes there's not the appropriate word. A lot of times there are, but sometimes for these types of words, there's not an exact replication of it, right? So it's not an exact replication, and you know as well as I do, that words over time begin to shape a little bit with the culture that they have. So when they made the transition to, hey, we're going to, you know, this is a church. Okay, these are churches. The church stopped being seen as the group of individuals and started to be seen as the building. Started to be seen as, at the time, the priest. Started to be seen as the clergy, and then everybody attends church, right? But in the way Jesus says it, he's not saying that I will build my event that they will attend once a week. That's not what he says. Some of us wish it was that easy, right? Because then it's just a checklist. But he's not saying that. He says, no, I'm going to build my gathering of followers. And that will not be overcome by the gates of hell. And he says that nothing will overcome it. And here's the thing. That's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. Because Christianity changed the world. It literally changed the world. I mean, not to mention that it's on the birth of Christ that we have, you know, determined time. That's part of it. That the world changed when Jesus came. And the world changed when he died. Because his disciples took what he said seriously. And the Holy Spirit was poured out and empowered them. So, case in point, after Je- in the time of Jesus and even afterwards, what the Romans would do is they would set out decrees certain times, and it would be like, hey, we don't want any more babies in this village, or we don't want any more babies in this village, or maybe if a child was born with a deformity of some sort, or you know what we know today is like a, a Down syndrome or autism or some sort of disability or missing an arm or missing a leg, 
in that culture, it was deemed that that was, that was not a useful child. So they would leave them out, and it was called exposure. And they would simply take the babies, and they would leave the babies out in the weather, and then they would let whatever happened with nature happen with nature. And for us, we hear that, and we go, that is awful. That is brutal. It was common practice in those days. You weren't even really a person until you could start to form sentences in their mind. And even then, you were just kind of a slave until you got old enough to have your own family. Then you mattered. But for kids, it really didn't matter. And it was the Christians, the Jesus followers, that came along and would find those kids and began saving them, bringing them into their house. It's where the idea of adoption came from. They would pull them in, and the Christians would take them in and just keep them as if they were their own, regardless of how they looked, regardless of the situation, regardless of the disabilities, the Christians would go out of their way to bring them in. And that got the attention of a lot of different people. And then, a couple of years after, about 100 years after the death of Jesus in 165 AD, during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, some of you guys know him, you've read the, the things he's written in the Roman Empire, it was hit, his, his empire was hit by a terrible, terrible plague. Now today there's some speculations as to what that plague is, but they're not even really sure today what actually swept through the Roman Empire at that time. They believe it was probably smallpox, but they don't know for sure. And it just started killing people left and right. And it, it, it flew through the empire because the Roman Empire, what made it so powerful was it was so well connected, right? I mean, they had these roadways between these cities, so that made it a lot easier for a disease to travel. And then this huge plague starts sweeping across the Roman Empire. And as it's sweeping across the Roman Empire, the Roman doctors fled the disease. They would, they would flee. They'd be like, oh, it's, here it is. It's in this city. We better go. Honey, pack up. We got to go. We can't do this. People are like, hold on, you're the doctor. And he's like, not in this city, I'm not. And he goes to the next one. (laughs) But the ones that made the difference were the Christians. This is what's groundbreaking, and this is why you should be proud that you're a follower of Christ. And if you're not, you should at least give it some, some thought, is that Christians, carriers of the name of Jesus, would wade into those cities and care for those who were dying and care for those who were afflicted and care for those. And what they would do is they would get everybody's attention, not because they were being loud about it, but because while everybody else was leaving, they were going in. Because they wanted to make a difference in that city. And they wanted to help those people because of the situation that they were in and they were given. Before Christianity, women and children were consistently mistreated, like they just were. Women and children were property, That's what happened, and there was no big deal. And if you were a female and you were born to a family, you were really a piece of property because then your dad could marry you off to the next family and build strong relationships, and that was a good thing, right? Like, I mean, hey, that's that's what we all cared about. Nobody cared about women and children up until the Christians came. And when the Christians came and we see all of a sudden Jesus elevating women to the place of equality with men, and then everybody gets uncomfortable because in that culture it's like, hold on a second, what do you mean? And Jesus is like, no, 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 they're, they're together. In fact, does anybody know who saw Jesus at the tomb first? And then, this is another, this is totally a side, sidebar, but if the, if the Gospels were made up, okay, if they were made up, you would not write the woman to be the one to see Jesus first. 
Because in that culture, women did not have any credibility. So if the Gospels are made up, it would have most certainly been Peter that saw it, because he's the hero. Or it would have been John, or it would have been one of the disciples that were closest to Jesus, most certainly not the ladies that he traveled with. So that should give you some confidence in your New Testament. But what ended up happening was Jesus elevated women in the world. And then the Apostle Paul comes along and sees what Jesus is saying. And then the Apostle Paul says scandalous words to the husbands, like, husbands, love your wives. And everybody now goes, yeah, of course. And then Paul says, hold on, not just love your wives, because that's easy. Love your wives, as, does anybody remember the rest of the verse? As Christ loved the church. So next time, ladies, he gets rowdy with you, just say, Jesus wouldn't treat me like that. But that's what Paul says, and he elevates women again, and both Paul and Jesus elevate women and put them on even playing grounds. Totally scandalous for the ancient world was not going to happen, was not going to happen at all. And then Jesus says the words where he's talking about the kids, and the apostles are like, or the disciples are like, look, we got to get these kids away from you, Jesus. They're everywhere. And Jesus says, no, 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 let the little children come to me. And anybody that gets in the way of them, he says this, and this should be uncomfortable for any of us. Um, is that he says that those who prevent kids coming to Christ, they should be worse than, the punishment will be worse than them being tied around a millstone around their neck and thrown into the river. That sounds pretty terrible. That sounds like something out of the Sopranos, okay? <laughs> I ain't about that life. And Jesus elevates the importance of these two people who were totally, that they didn't care about at all, but they were elevated totally to the top. And then we've got the idea of the sexual ethics. Didn't exist at all. If you study Greek culture, it didn't exist. You study Roman culture, it didn't exist. You would have a wife and then have friends, right? And then you would have a husband and, and, and he would go and do his thing and then you would kind of do your thing and it was just normal. Or it would be whatever orientation with whoever you wanted it and it didn't matter. And then all of a sudden Jesus and the Christians come onto the stage and the Jews have been saying this for a while, but something was different when Christ came about the Christians. They stepped, the Christians step onto the pages of history and they begin to influence the empires by saying, no, 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 no. Sexual relations is between one man and one woman. And they begin to say, no, look in the beginning, in the garden, the way it started. This is how it's supposed to be. And determining sexual ethics and started to say, no, 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 we're not going to do prostitution. We're not going to do children. We're not going to do these things. We're not going to do... And all of this is done. That started because of the Christians began to infiltrate the culture and influence the culture in a positive, positive way. The world was fundamentally changed because of people like us. Fundamentally changed. Everybody loves living in this country right now in America. Some of the things we enjoy, the ideas that we enjoy, the ideas in the West as a whole, that women are equal, that children are valuable, that came from Christianity. It wasn't there before. And we see it the first time. In fact, an uh, atheist New Testament scholar or historian, his name is Bart Ehrman, he was a Christian began doing his studies and decided that he didn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah anymore. But he didn't lose any of his understanding of how important the church and what Christ did was. So he like is not one of those people that, like the Jesus deniers, those, those people are few and far between nowadays. But Bart Ehrman, so he's a, he's a new atheist. They bring him on college, they bring him on college universities 
to argue the point that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. They do that all the time. This is what he has to say about Christianity. He says, Christianity not only took over an empire, it radically altered the lives of those living in it. It opened the door to public policies and institutions to tend to the poor, the weak, the sick, the outcast, and started treating them as deserving members of society. It was a revolution that affected government practices, legislation, art, literature, music, philosophy, and even on a fundamental level, the very understanding of billions of people about what it means to be a human. Christ redefined that. However, one evaluates the merits of the case, whether Christianization of the West was a triumph to be treasured or a defeat to be lamented, no one can deny it was the most monumental cultural transformation our world has ever seen. And that is a New Testament atheist. He sits back and says, it was groundbreaking what the Christians did all those years ago. No one would ever deny, nobody's ever going to deny that Christianity changed the world. Do, do Christians make mistakes? Absolutely. Have we made mistakes as, a Christ, as Christians? Absolutely. Has the church as a whole made mistakes? Absolutely. Well, Brandon, how can it be from God if it makes mistakes? Y'all read the story of David, right? Kills the giant, cuts the head off, saves Israel, cheats on his wife. Then kills her, the lady's husband. People are messy. So if the church is going to be held to this idea that it never makes any mistakes, that's not accurate. It's, it's not going to happen that way. Sure, we should strive for that. Of course you don't. <laughs> Glad you're in church. Hopefully Apple gets that and somebody gets saved. <laughs> uh, but the, the thing is, is that mistakes are going to be made, absolutely. They're absolutely going to be made. And, and Christians have made mistakes and the church has made mistakes in the past. Absolutely it has. But is the world better as a whole because Christians are in it? Absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. And here's something that we forget and something that I forget and sometimes we don't pay attention to is that you are the church. You are the church. Not the building not the name of the organization, not the worship team, not the pastor. You are the church. It's not programming, it's not staff, it's you. You are your church. Your local church is because of you. You are the ones that have the ability to influence and impact the culture around us, just like those Christians did hundreds and thousands of years ago. They were, we were able to do that because of people like you. Now, sure, it looked different. They didn't have cool lights, right? They didn't have a dope drum set. They didn't have an electric guitar. But they were followers of Christ gathering together the same way we are now, and they changed the world. And it can happen again. And I don't know what God's call on your life is. Okay, I can't sit here and tell you, yeah, God wants you to marry that person, don't marry this person, start this job, don't start this job. I can't tell you all that. But what I can tell you, I can tell you at least one thing is God's will for your life is to be part of a local church 
a gathering of Jesus followers, okay, a gathering of Jesus followers and make a difference in that community. I know that's the case because Christ said that Christians are to be salt and light. Salt preserves the good things and light leads the way forward in darkness. And he says, my followers, these are the words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. These followers, my followers, he says, are to be salt and light, preservers of the good things and shining the way forward in the darkness. That's what we are supposed to do. And the Apostle Paul captures it best in the importance of being connected to the local church. He says, even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. You guys have heard this passage in this section before. The Apostle Paul is attempting to explain spiritual gifts particularly, but he applies this idea multiple times in his letters. So he's applying this idea of Christianity and Christians being the body of Christ, specifically what the local church should look like. He says this, Now if the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. First of all, if your foot starts talking, you should go see a doctor. (laughs) Or stop drinking whatever you're drinking. Just stop. Okay? So that's part of it. But it's funny, but he makes a point. He's kind of joking around about it. And he's like, come on, you guys know this. I mean, if your foot started talking and said, I'm not part of the body, you'd look at it and go, yeah, you are. You're right there. Right? And and he says, well, your foot says, but I'm not a hand, so I'm not part of the body. And you're like, no, dude, you do a different purpose. You serve a different role. He continues, he says, and if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. It would not for that reason stop being part of the body. It's connected. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? Now we hear this and we breeze over it because these are things that we don't often pay attention to, but Paul's point is that each one of us is uniquely designed and uniquely equipped to fill a role in the local church. And now some of you guys hear that and go, oh, pastor's going to try to get me to serve on a door. Yes, absolutely. If you want to serve on a door, cool. But it's more about being connected to the body of Christ. And people sit back and go, okay, Brandon, I'm there. I have gifts and stuff. Well, what are those gifts? What do I... what do I do? How do I know what those are? Look, I can't tell you what they are, but I can tell you you'll never figure them out unless you're connected to the body. If you're connected to the body, we can figure out what to do with whatever part you are, but if you aren't connected, how do we know? Because in that part, then hey, you really aren't a part of the body. Do you guys remember the puzzle we talked about in the beginning? You are part of the puzzle. And God doesn't do anything by accident. He didn't make you by accident. He didn't give you the skill set he gave you by accident. He knew what he was doing. He didn't send you to new post by accident. He doesn't send you to these places by accident. He knows what he's doing because you are that piece of the puzzle that maybe away from the puzzle doesn't look like it belongs. Come on, somebody. But when you put it in with the rest of it, it makes perfect sense because we are meant to do this together. That when we are following Jesus and being a follower of Christ, when we are connected to the body, then we begin to truly make a difference in the world. Paul closes it with this, with this statement. It's a, it's, a, it's a non-argumentative finality statement. This is what he says. Now you are the body of Christ. Not that you might be. Not that if you feel like it. 
Not that, hey, when you're feeling really spiritual, then you're the body of Christ. You know what I'm talking about? Like when you feel the warm and fuzzies during worship, that's when you're the body of Christ. After, but I mean, if you don't feel it, you're not the body of Christ. He just says, you are the body of Christ. And each one of you, he's talking to the church in Corinth. Each one of you, he says, is a part of it. So listen to me. And this is not an over-exaggeration. You are the hope of the world. You are a light on a hill. And the reason why we say make a difference around here is because it means nothing if it stays in this room. If the light stays in this room, it's almost useless because we're only going to save those who come in the room. So let's work on carrying the light of Christ outside of this room. That happens when we serve at the Brisbane Center. That happens when we serve at the Hope House and at Choices. That happens when we're able to give meals to the school system in Jesus' name, right? Those things happen. I don't know whether you guys know this, but Cedar Forest, when they have a need, they call this church. They don't call any of the other big ones around here. They call this church because we've been there, because that's what it means to be a local church to be a group of Jesus followers that are making a difference and shining the light of Christ outside of just Sunday morning. And Jesus prayed for you. John records he prayed for you. He prayed for the church. He predicted the church, and then he commanded the church. You are a difference maker. You are a difference maker. You may not feel like it right now, but if you're a follower of Christ, you're a difference maker, and you're uniquely positioned and uniquely equipped to be able to make a difference in your community. You are part of God's divine plan, and I don't mean this as just church talk. This is absolutely true, that you are part of God's divine plan to expand his kingdom if you are a follower of Christ. But the key is we have to be connected. Nobody's doing it alone. Nobody's making this, that kind of an impact in the community or that kind of impact in the city and pointing all eyes to Jesus by themselves. It's when the collective body of Christ comes together that those things begin to happen. So my point for this week is stop going to church and be the church. It's not an event. It's a thing we become when we follow him. So stop going to church, stop just going to church, and be the church. And my practical people are like, all right, dude, I'm on board, but what on earth does that mean, right? Some of you guys are like leaning forward with your notebooks, like, just tell me what to do, I'll do it, I just need to know what to do, right? He's, so it, it looks like this, I want you to fully engage in your local church, Fully engage in your local church. And you go, Brandon, what are you talking about? I'm going to give you four simple, simple steps. Okay, four simple steps. Write them down, take a picture, whatever you need to do. And you're like, man, I don't know if I'm engaged in my church. If you're doing these things, you're engaged in your church. But you have to do these things because if not, have you ever seen a part of the body that's been disconnected? It's gross. Okay, it's gross. And what happens when we get disconnected, we start be a little gross. Isn't it true? Haven't you seen Christians that aren't connected and they don't follow and they get lost? It's because they're not connected to the body. So four things to engage. Here's what it looks like in our context right now. The first one 
is serving. Serving someone else. Serving on a team. To where Sunday automatically ain't about you all the time. That's a big deal. And people think back and they go, oh, it's not, it's not that important. No, it really is that important. When you begin to hold a door and you say, hey, I'm not the most important person, maybe I should, have, should not have said this would be easier. But when you're at the door and you say, no, I'm not the most important person here, these, these people coming in, because that's a new family and I don't know if they know Christ. Or, you know, I know their story and they told me a little bit about it and I'm pretty sure they don't know Christ. So I'm going to take the time and effort and put the energy in to make sure that I'm serving and taking care of them. Maybe it's in the kids' wing. Maybe it's back in the production. Wherever it is, serving on a team. And here's the thing that also does is it gets you connected with a group of people. That's the most important part. It gets you connected with, him, with a group of people. You stop saying, I'm the most important on Sunday, because none of us say that, right? None of us say that. That's the 11 o'clock. The 9 o'clock doesn't say things like that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. For those of you that are staying both, you're super holy. <laughs> you get a double blessing. But the, you get connected with a group of people. And when you get connected with a group of people, you say, it's no longer about me, but it's about the other folks. And then I've got my group. The second thing is joining. Join a life group. Join a Bible study. Join a class. Join something. Join something. Even if it's once a month, join something to where you have a place where you're not working because here on Sunday, it's great to put on the service and work and do all that stuff together. That's phenomenal. But being part of a group is where you begin to really begin to build those relationships and you can unpack some of the deeper parts of God's scripture. The third one is giving, financially supporting the church. You guys heard me say in the very beginning, this, state, this place doesn't exist without you. It doesn't. Just flat out. If everybody stops giving, this building goes away and goes up for sale. And this isn't a church anymore. This isn't a church building in a gathering space. It'll be a warehouse. So it happens because so many of you guys give to us. And honestly, because it's, we're able to use it to pour out into the community. And the fourth one, this is probably the most uncomfortable for all of you. Everybody's got one of these four that you, it popped up and you're like, ugh, right? You get through the first three and you're like, I'm good. And then I, whatever one comes up that ain't you. This fourth one is inviting, inviting your friends to follow Jesus. And people say, well, Brandon, why is that one so important? Well, let me ask you this, because let me say this, because it's too good to keep to yourself. Following Jesus has made me a better husband. It's made me a better father. It's made me a better person. Because the work of the Holy Spirit inside of me is changing who the world started to shape me to be and shape me more into who He wants me to be, which is a better version every time than what the world's going to create. So if we have that, why would we keep that to ourselves? Now, I don't mean be obnoxious about it. Don't do that, right? If you're talking about a fish fry, don't segue that into the moment Jesus was given fish with Peter and <laughs> them on the, you know, don't, don't be that Christian, but when the moment is right and you're there and you're caring for people and you're along the way and somebody says, I just don't know how I can keep going, you go, man, I wish you had my Jesus. And that'll, that'll, people will go, what do you mean you wish I had your Jesus? And you go, hey, man, I just have a piece that you don't understand. I had a friend that did that. And he was dealing with some stuff coming back from the war. And, and he was talking about it. And I was like, look, dude, I wish I could help you, but I can't because Jesus helped me and I can't help you. I know he can help you. That's it. And then I baptized that guy like a couple, couple months later, so it was dope. But it's inviting, and it's being smart about it and being wise and listening to the guidance of the Holy Spirit, but inviting your friends. And we use the language here, come sit with me. 
If you have a friend coming, I'm going to give you a free pass right now, and all the team leaders are going to send me really nasty text messages after this. But if you have a friend that's coming to sit with you on Sunday, call your team leader and say, I'm sitting with my friend. We will find a replacement. It's that important. Them having the ability and feeling comfortable to hear the words of Christ and to hear the gospel is more important than you serving coffee or running sound or running in the back or whatever you're doing. Them hearing the gospel is the number one importance. So if that's what it takes, call them and say, hey, or call your team leader and say, hey, you know, I've got this person coming in. I've been working on them for a while. I, I invited them to sit with me. I'm going to sit with me. Okay? So inviting is important. So the four things we do. We serve, we join, we give, we invite. Serve, join, give, and invite. And I'm sure all of us have one of these that we don't like. We all have one of these that we're like, I'm good with the other three. That one, mm -mm, I ain't doing that one. I'm not inviting my friends. I'm not giving. I'll do everything else. I don't want to serve on a team. What if it's only once every two months? Look, I don't want to serve on a team. I don't like people. <laughs> Let's just be honest. Not to do a group. No, I don't want to do a group. I'm so busy all the time. Well, you make time for everything else. Well, yeah. You have time for a Super Bowl party? Yeah. Do you have time for a Bible study? No. Yeah, I'm not going to keep going on that one. Not today. I'll get run off. But again, this is how we engage with the local church because you heard me say, like, you've seen what happens when you're disconnected. When you're disconnected, we begin to atrophy and we become gross. We become something totally different than a follower of Christ. Dare I say it, we become a consumer, not a follower. Because we just come in and consume when all we do is sit and not actually be the church. And the church is losing influence in culture. That's what some people say. But in fact, we've never had a greater opportunity in fact, in just the last couple of years, I got some stats up here. The millennia, millennials, so my generation, five years ago, only 24% were interested in Christianity or some sort of religion. That number now is up to 32%. So media will tell you that you're, we, we are losing influence. Maybe we're losing influence. We're not losing ability. We're not losing interest. Maybe we're doing it wrong. And then the one after that, Gen Z, that was originally 24%, and now it's 32%. So when people say, look, nobody's interested in Jesus, don't tell me that. There's a need, and we need to fill it. And Jesus even said in the beginning, the harvest is, what's the word he used? But the workers, or anybody know the word? It's not a them problem. It's an us problem. It's an us problem. So engage in the local church. Get connected. It's how we spread the gospel all around this city. I want to see this, complete, this city completely changed because of the Jesus followers in it. Because of not just this church, but all of the churches in this city and in this county and in these surrounding counties. Because the movement of Christ is alive and revival is happening. That only happens when the body is connected. If it's not connected, it's, dis it's disconnected. It's not going to achieve 
It's cool. So don't be gross. Don't be gross. You've seen body parts that are not part of, you know, not connected. That's gross. Don't be gross. We don't want to be gross. In all honesty, it's the way we make a difference. All those avenues, it's the way that we change the world. Christianity's done it once before. Who's to say it can't happen again? Why can't it? It has multiple times. You've heard of these big revivals? Those things happen. Christian initiatives, people being part of it not just sitting by and watching on the sidelines. Not consumers of Christ, but followers of Christ. So don't be gross. Get connected to your local church. So, before we sing, I would love to pray for you. Father, thank you. Thank you for these reminders. Even though they're challenging, even though they're tough, even though it just makes life, sometimes it makes life difficult for us, Lord, because it's so much easier just for it to be a check in the box on Sunday morning. And if we're being honest, Lord, I think we would all prefer something a little easier, but Jesus didn't call us to easy. He said, pick up your cross and that we are to follow him. Not just believe in him, not just consume him on Sunday mornings, but to follow him. And he made a difference in the world that will not even close to be replicated. But through his power and through his spirit, we believe we can make a difference in this world, Lord. So Father, help us be reminded to stay connected. Empower us to connect to our local church and to begin making a difference in this city and making a difference in this community. Father, we love you. We give you all of the praise this morning. And the church said, amen.